0: Thank you.
1: Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the TDN. I also co-host the Down
2: the Stretch Show on Sirius XM Radio. Hey guys, good morning. I'm Randy Moss, NBC Sports. Trusty sidekick Lucy in her usual position.
0: So, Catman here with Fast Racing and XBTV. Doodle's still in bed It's 6 a.m. West Coast time. Good morning, guys. Got a nice cup of tea here and I'm I'm ready to get going.
1: Yeah, thank you for getting up early for us today, Zoe. As we uh, tape this on a Tuesday morning, um, and want to remind you that the writers' room is brought to you each week by Keeneland. And speaking to Keeneland, let's start off with the the story of the sales of this week. And Zoe, we're going to lean a lot on you because this is not really a field of expertise for me and Randy. But it's a familiar story. But I, I think the story is even uh, bigger this year of the top end selling great. And then when you get outside the top end, when you get outside the book one type horses, there's there's been problems. So the good news for Keeneland, they saw a successful book one last Wednesday with a 30 percent increase in median from book one last year and a slight 8 percent decrease in average compared to last year. So book one went fine. Since then, numbers were down later in the week, a 15.1% decrease in average and 20% drop in median in book two. Cumulatively through Sunday, we're at 16, a 16.54% decrease in average overall. We're seeing again, a polarization of the market, but this is probably the strongest example yet of that trend. And we're getting high demand for quality offerings, but horses that might be lacking in pedigree, physical or other elements will often be offered at discounted rates for the buyers. Zoe, what does it all mean?
0: I think you pretty much summed it up right there, Bill. It's polarization in the market. What we've seen over the past couple of years Is people keeping their better stock. So before we'd see these pin pin hookers come in and buy a weaning for a hundred thousand, they'd sell it for 500. Now the people that own the wheelings are keeping those justifies. They're keeping the good ones for September. They're not going to say, Oh, here's Peter O'Callaghan. Sorry, Pete. From (laughs) here he comes. I'm going to sell him my really nice baby for 150 for 250 so he can make a million dollars next year. It's just not happening. People are culling their lesser stock, especially with the foals, and they're gonna keep them for themselves, maybe to race or maybe to see if they can have that kind of return on investment for next year. So that's the simple fact of the matter. It is a buyer's market. Like if I was there shopping, Morette's there shopping, she's bought a couple of lovely mares and she's absolutely delighted. This is a time where if you've got a little bit of money in your pocket, You can sift through these horses and you can buy the good ones. The ones that are making the money, people are just zoning in on. Are they really that good? I'm not quite sure they are, but they're the same horses that tick all the boxes, as everyone likes to say, that people are honing in on and those ones are going to make the money that you take them up there. The rest of them, people are going to cull them, they're going to look through them and they're going to... Maybe find some bargains, or maybe you're going to take them home. People are being much more selective in this day and age. And I think what you're going to see for next year's yearling market is that the trend is going to continue. The good ones that have been kept out of these sales are going to sell for a million dollars. I mean, you have if you take something up there that's worth $150,000, you are probably going to make a lot more money than you are if you're going to take one that looks like a $20,000 horse. It's just the simple fact of the matter that I think people are tired of other people making money. And And Zoe, if, if this
1: continues, this trend continues, what does it all mean for horse racing and for the breeding market?
0: I mean, the horses are still there. You're going to have a lot more homebreds, which is what we're going to have going forward. And the people with the money are still going to make money and they're still going to be able to pin hook. Now it's probably going to, tipple over into the two-year-old market as well and at some point it has to stop but the interest rates are still high people with a lot of money are still going to be able to make a lot of money it's just affecting the middle market which is basically the glue that keeps it all together so while it is concerning i think we're literally going to see a lot more homebreds coming out onto the racetrack which in my mind is a good thing the less these horses go through the sales, the less hard it is and the, the less people tinker with them. So I, I'm all for homebreds. Uh, hopefully the breeding industry doesn't go down anymore as far as falls to ground because I think we're just about the right level right now. And we'll just have to keep an eye on it moving forward. But, yeah, polarization is the name of the game.
2: So as, as far as the upper end – uh, showing a, a significant increase. Our green group guest of the week this week is John Stewart. Can't wait to hear from him. He just took the Keeneland sales by storm. Right. How much can the impact of that one guy have on the overall numbers for the upper end?
0: Well, you saw how high the median was. Now, he's probably done shopping because he's shopping at the upper end, and those days have already gone. He doesn't want to have the horse he can afford. He wants the one he really wants. What did he say? The... Um, uh, he he's not a bidder. He's a buyer. Like right, he just right. wants to buy something. He doesn't want to bid on a horse. He wants to buy a horse. So he's likely done for the Keeneland sale. He already spent at the top end, which is probably why the median was up for Book One. Partly thanks to John Stewart. But hey, listen. Anytime someone wants to come into our industry and dump a whole bunch of money, what is wrong with that? What is someone with good thoughts? towards the sport, I applaud him. And I wish we had more billionaires like Jon Stewart in the sport to bid against. Maybe he could bid against another billionaire. We have plenty (laughs) of them. Come on in guys, come on in. You're welcome.
1: Yeah, you can never have too many billionaires now, can you? All right, so speaking of the Keeneland sale, we're gonna turn the page and do a horses of racing age sale. And this is one of the most fascinating things that I don't recall ever seeing a Kentucky Derby winner being sold at auction like this. And of course, we're talking about Rick Strike. Uh, they tried to get him back to the races. There even was the trainer change with bringing him over to Bill Mott. But uh, the things that were bothering him were uh, serious enough that uh, Mott and owner Rick Dawson decided that he could not race anymore. So the only thing to do now is to uh, try to prepare him for a stallion career. Uh, rather than putting in a, in a deal and finding a farm, they're going to put him in the sales ring and let the industry and let the bidders themselves decide where he goes. Um, uh, I I guess there's, well, there's two questions here. First of all, how much will he sell for and who will he sell for? Um, And Zoe, this is more, again, a question for you because you're the expert. Um, How much will he sell for? My answer would be not very much. And where will he go or who will buy him? My answer will be not anybody in Kentucky maybe a foreign market, maybe a small regional market. Um, I wish them well, but nothing about this horse says he's going to break the bank.
0: I know it's a shame. Um, You know, the owner's got plenty of money. I don't know why he wouldn't try and stand him somewhere like Pennsylvania. I mean, he's a beautiful looking horse. He won the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, he's nice, But, you know, if you look past that pedigree, it, it does go back to some pretty nice horses. So, I, I don't know where he's going to land. There are several other nice horses in there. You got first captain, the Dwyer winner. He's in there. Uh, King Fury's in there. Hey, you can buy Tarico If you're a fan of Mike Torico, he's in there as well. So as far as Rich Strike, I, I I don't know. I wouldn't. It depends what the reserve is because I'm going to guess that that guy's got a pretty high reserve on him, and maybe he wants to see where the market takes him. But I can't. I can't think. Of who wants him? I mean, he should start in a regional market. Why couldn't he? Well, He's a beautiful I'll, horse.
2: I'll, I'll offer a guess. I hope Rich Strike likes sushi. Ooh, why Japan, Randy? Yeah, why not? Why? Because they've they've got a uh, they've got a past history of buying classic winning horses from the United States that aren't that highly thought of for uh, as stallion prospects in this country. Okay. You know. It's happened a lot, if not classic winners, um, you know, horses that have performed well on the racetrack in the United States. And they brought them over there and they've done fairly well. I mean, most recently, mind your biscuits. All right. The over under on what he sells
1: for. I'll set it at 500,000. I'll go under. Really?
2: Over yeah. for me.
0: Yeah, over. I'm going to say probably 1.2.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. what I was going to say. One point two, we're
1: thinking one point two. Certainly, we're not quite on the same page there, but we shall see what happens. Uh, the other big story at the sales, uh, Fasic, Tipton, um Tipton, uh, the Night of the Stars, uh, both Goodnight Olive and Nest were bought. Uh, Nest was bought by Mike Rapoli to b- uh, buy out the partners, and Goodnight Olive was bought by our uh, upcoming Green Group Guest of the Week, uh, John Stewart. Both will be coming back to race next year. Terrific news to see uh, two of the best fillies uh, of their uh, recent times coming back, and uh, we really look forward to seeing them. Get back onto the track. And maybe Goodnight Olive can win a third straight Breeders' Cup Philly and Mayor's sprint.
0: Don't see why not. I, she left at the top of her game, and just looking at her physically, she is absolutely gorgeous. I, I'm not so sure about Ness, to be perfectly honest, because she tailed off quite significantly, but certainly Goodnight Olive, yes. We've mentioned Keeneland a lot already in the TDN writers room it is brought to you by Keeneland. The Keeneland November Breeding Stock Sale is going on now and will wrap up on Thursday. And after that, we mentioned Ritz Strike and several others. The horses of Racing Age Sale will see 300 horses go through the ring, including the Kentucky Derby winner, Rich Strike. Over! million, we're betting a Coke on that, as well as grade two winning millionaire, smile happy and oh, so much more. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. At Keeneland, a horse will always be measured in hands. Hands that see... that hold our sport to a higher standard. Not for our sake, but for theirs. For the love of the horse. For generations to come.
2: The TD and Riders Room is brought to you by the Fast Sires at Windstar Farm, the sponsor of our weekly Fastest Horse of the Week segment. This week's Sire at WinStar that we're going to spotlight. My favorite three-year-old of 2023. You know who that is. Two fills, the runner-up in the Kentucky Derby, uh, retired you know after another stakes win uh, following the Kentucky Derby. He ran some of the highest buyers around two turns of any three-year-old this year. And his Kentucky Derby number itself, 105, was equal to or higher than every other Derby winner for the past 15 years. And don't forget, he did that while being in close proximity to a very fast early pace a two-time stakes winner also as a two-year-old two fills is standing his first year at winstar farm in 2024 for a fee of twelve thousand five hundred dollars this week's sire of the week at winstar two fills now the fastest horse of the week from a buyer speed figure perspective trained by guess who rick Dutrow. its masterpiece the winner of the red smith at aqueduct on saturday masterpiece recorded a buyer speed figure in that race of 99 so dutro not only with wide barrio and another stakes winner in the interim now the fastest horse of the week masterpiece also from the growing now rick dutro barn So
1: this Sunday, I think all of us were glued to our televisions with 60 Minutes, did a piece on horse racing. And it was not a pretty piece. It was really about all the problems that the sport is having right now, primarily with drugs and breakdowns. Um, I thought for the most part, it was fair. Um, One thing I think that they kind of went overboard that I didn't agree with is, I thought they kind of tried to um, say that the breakdowns and the doping were interrelated. Um, sometimes they may be, I suppose, but th- th- that's not the case. They're two very different issues. It's not like every horse that breaks down is is because the, the trainer gave them um, some performance enhancing drugs. Um, they did a good job presenting, I think, uh, both sides of the issues, several people from within the racing industry, including Lisa Lazarus, were allowed time to say, Hey, look, you know, we have a problem here, but we're trying our best and we are making progress and we are going to fix this. But now, if we take a, a big step backward, um, here we go again to uh, one of the most famous television shows there is with an audience of several million people. I believe it was about 12 million people watch this. We're exposed to horse racing's problems, and when you put them down on paper, it doesn't look good. It's not a good look. So, um, you know, it, it, it's I wouldn't call it a hit job by any stretch of the imagination. I think it just told the story of what is going on in horse racing uh, going back at least several years, at least since the indictments of su- service in Navarro in March 2020, maybe even before that with the Santa Anita breakdowns. And uh, as we look in the mirror, it's not a good look.
2: You know, I, I was struck watching the 60 Minutes show, uh, and especially in, hind, in hindsight, by one thing, uh, by a lot of things, really. But one thing in specifically, the lack in the thoroughbred racing industry of an effective PR spokesperson. Okay. Uh, Lisa Lazarus has done a really good job at Heisa. It, it's a continuing job. It's, it's, it's a thankless job. Lisa Lazarus is not intended to be, and I don't think sees herself necessarily as a mouthpiece, as a spokesperson for the thoroughbred industry. She's an administrator. She's in charge of of, uh, taking care of HISA and getting all the details right and making sure legally that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. She's not a PR type spokesperson. To me, that segment on 60 Minutes cried for somebody within the thoroughbred industry who could, who could answer some of those very negative leading questions in, in a way like this. Just say, look, uh, this is a wonderful sport. It's a traditional sport. It's part of Americana. Horses, by and large, get wonderful care, and they're loved by the people who have them. But yes, like most other professional sports, horse racing has problems. And it has problems that have not been adequately addressed over the decades by the states. It has problems that we're attempting to address right now. We're making headway. We're not there yet. It does have a, uh, a dark side if we don't get these problems taken care of. And we're efforting tremendously to get this sport right back on the right track. There are a lot of great things about the sport. People who love the sport will attest to that. Um, but yes, it you know it, it it has its needs that we're trying to address. I didn't really hear any of that. And I think it was an important omission um, from the industry perspective on that 60-minute telecast.
0: Randy, for spokesperson, I vote for that. Uh, but you're right. We do need a better spokesperson. And Lisa Lazarus is doing an excellent job. I mean, how many jobs does she need? She shouldn't right. have to go in front of the camera every time somebody calls her, but she does because there's nobody else. So hire someone to do that. That's your job. Hire someone else. Hire an actor if you want to. That would be great. We need someone with a good voice that can really articulate what perhaps we can't get across. They could have mentioned the drop in fatalities. You I mean, you never really want to say that 69 horses died last year, but 69 compared to 112 just in 2017 is a significant drop. Why not just mention that? Mention some good things about the sport. Joanne Hayden is a dear friend of mine. She wrote she runs Dark Hollow Farm along with her husband in Maryland and wrote a big long page and is sending it to 60 Minutes. Hey, listen, we're in the Maryland horse industry. We put millions of dollars into paying taxes. Like the industry needs us. How about we put some of the good things in here? I mean, the facts are irrefutable. Nobody can deny what has happened. We're glad those people are behind bars, but put some good in there to the 12 million people that watch 60 Minutes. Don't make them condemn them. Because if I'm showing it to my boyfriend who can't spell horse, if he's watching that, he's going to say, what what the hell are you doing in horse racing? That's just terrible. Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know the good things about the sport. He doesn't know the pluses. All he knows is the minuses. We need more people on the plus end. One thing I took umbrage with, and I, I watched it, and I actually heard Jay... Jay Priven mentioned it as well, was the quote from Stuart Janney. And I know Stuart and he's a good guy and he's trying to take the sport by the reins and just shake it up. He said, the important people that I think are cheating in the sport. That's who he put five stones onto, the important people that I think are cheating in the sport. That's fine. So who did you investigate of the important people that proved to be not cheaters. Why can't we have those names out there? Surely they investigated more people than just Navarro and service. What about the rest? Who else did they investigate? Yeah, I mean,
2: if anyone who else? thinks that Bob Baffert wasn't a target uh, is probably uh, in denial.
0: So he wasn't in that. So he's clean, right? right? So why aren't we mentioning that? Why can't we mention the people that already jumped the hurdles and passed the test? Let's have some good stuff in here. I mean, that's the only thing that I I took a little bit of umbers from. The facts are irrefutable. Nobody can deny that. But it's 60 minutes. Yeah,
2: and and what you're talking about, Zoe, I mean, you don't have to be stretching the truth in terms of positivity to make some of those points. Because the, the, the fatalities have significantly gone down. And there has been progress made on a lot of different fronts, including medication in the sport. Is it where we want it to be? Is it where it needs to be? no. But at least the needle is moving in the right direction, and it wouldn't be, uh, you know, being falsely positive to make some of those points.
1: Randy, overall, what does a a segment like this do to horse racing's image? I mean, it's already been bloodied and sullied so much as it is, um, you know, and then here you have uh, a huge media outlet picking up on something. I didn't, and that's the thing, I don't think they came up with, they didn't come up with anything new. No. Which, uh, I was a little bit disappointed. They, they just rehashed everything that has that happened so far. But again, we, we talk about that. How many of these, you know, attacks can horse racing uh, sustain and hope the end of the day, you know, still be uh, standing upright?
2: You know, there was nothing new, and horse racing has taken so many uh, punches to the solar plexus in the last year with all the horse deaths uh, in Kentucky and then the horse deaths at Saratoga, et cetera. I'm not sure this has any, you know, great negative effect. Uh, uh, It certainly doesn't have a positive effect. What I'm curious about, I would like to know the genesis of, of this particular story, I was wondering um, that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it. This is not something that I would think that a sixty minutes producer is sitting around saying, "Okay, there's nothing new here," but let's put let's make a sixty minute story out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, maybe that'll come out at some point. Uh, exactly who called their attention to this and why this ended up on sixty minutes as it did. Uh, But do I think it did a tremendous amount of damage to the sport that hadn't already occurred? No, because I don't think there was anything really new. And if anything, if you want to, you know, try to spin something positive out of it, we've got two people sitting in prison Mm -hmm. as a result of an FBI investigation. So in terms of cleaning up the sport, progress is being made. The TD and Riders' Room is brought to you by the PHBA, the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. Pennsylvania breads continued to win around the country last week. This time, Crosby Beach held on late to win the final race of the Santa Anita Autumn Meat. Pennsylvania bred Crosby Beach, bred by Kathy Maybe and Gary Gimo. Meanwhile, the last leg of that $1 million two-year-old PA Sire PA Bread Stallion Series set for December 27th to $200,000 races at a mile and 70 yards. Again, check the pabread.com website to make sure your two-year-old is nominated. Any questions, email info at pabread.com. PA Bread, I think we've built uh, a brand At this point
3: the state of Pennsylvania has the best breeders program in the entire United States. Angel of Empire wins the Arkansas Derby and wins it clear. Caravelle in the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint. Pennsylvania and the PHBA have the best state bred program in the country bar none. The best breeders awards and stallion awards in the country.
2: The TD and Writers Room brought to you by The Green Group, a tax consulting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry and especially focusing on saving you money on your taxes. And we welcome in now the Green Group Guest of the Week, and is
1: John Stewart. And if you haven't been paying attention to what this gentleman has been doing at the sales of late, you just haven't been paying attention, period. Um, this is what I can tell you about John Stewart. He dropped out of college at age nineteen to work at Toyota as an hourly line worker, worked his way up through business, and was the founder and managing partner of Middle Ground Capital, a private equity firm. And then lo and behold, at September, Keeneland, he shows up and spends an awful lot of money, but buys 13 yearlings for 8.425 million, then returns for Phasic Tipton November and Keeneland November, buys 11 more mayors and yearlings for 17 million, uh, 17.35 million. So John, that's part of your story. The story that we don't know is why and when did you decide to not only get involved in horse racing, but to jump right into the deep end?
3: Uh, well, you know, if you get to know me, you'll find out that I don't do anything halfway. And so, you know, I bought my first horse last year and I went through a divorce. And while I was going through my when I was married, my wife never wanted me to get into the horse racing. I always had a passion for it and and uh, went to the races and enjoyed it. And then I got divorced. So I was like, hmm, OK, I'll buy a racehorse. And so I bought a racehorse last year. And um, as I started, you know, learning more about the industry. So I I'm tend to. You know, just different things that I get into. I, I want to research everything. I want to know everything. I want to know the history. I want to know uh, so much about it. And I've always respected the industry and how important it is to the to the the Kentucky uh, community and to the ec- economy of the state and to the especially to the Lexington area. And uh, you know, as sometimes you know, as as I've been able to get successful in my career uh, with my business, you know, it it affords you the opportunity to. Um, uh, get involved in things that you're passionate about and try to, you know, make an impact for people other than yourself. And so, you know, horse racing is one of the areas that um, I'm you know, passionate about. I understand the importance it has on the local economy. I think it's become, you know, less relevant today than it was maybe 30 years ago uh, in our area. And, you know, even like I think Ocala, Florida would challenge us for horse capital, you know, of at least North America, you know, and we would say horse capital of the world. But now, when you look at what's going on all over the world, there would be people that probably would challenge us in that too. And, and I think it's important, um, you know, to, I felt like it was important to get involved and uh, get involved in a big way um, so that I could help, uh, ch- you know, change that narrative for uh, the state and for the local area.
2: Uh, so, John, you went to the University of Kentucky. You wanted to get in the horse business, but your ex-wife didn't really want you to. How did this kind of passion for horse racing, you used the word passion, how did it originate?
3: Well, so I didn't go to the University of Kentucky. I actually, okay. so, I, so I went to Campbellsville University, which is a small school in Campbellsville, Kentucky, played football and baseball there. Dropped out my freshman year because Toyota was building their largest facility in the world in Georgetown, and uh, a bunch of guys on the football team were like, "Hey, let's go apply for this place." And and I was the only person who ended up getting hired and dropped out. My parents weren't very happy about me dropping out of school. Um, and then you know I ended up um, getting my degree while I was working at Toyota. And um, and then you know the rest is kind of history on, on my business side. But you know the passion's always been there. Um, you know I've always enjoyed uh, everything around the industry uh, and the excitement. Um, you know, the, the, the awesomeness of the, of the animals and, you know, their ability to, you know, uh, train and achieve. I mean, when you get to know the animals, uh, they, they want to race, you know, they like, you know, when, when they're, when they're, tra- they get ready in the morning, they're ready to go and they they want to go work and they enjoy it. And even when a horse, you know, retires, you know, it, it needs to work. It, you know, it needs something to do because they're, they're very intelligent animals And so, you know, I I can relate to all of that. You know, I similarly, I'm the kind of person I don't think I'll actually retire. I think I'll need to work. You know, uh, you know, I started out as a a line worker, as a blue collar worker. And, you know, I put that emphasis into into everything. And so, you know, like I said, I I, if I decide to do something, I'm not going to do anything, you know, halfway. I'm never the type of person that was just going to own shares of horses or, you know, and just kind of like piddle around with it and let someone else, you know, do all the work. Uh, and so once I, you know, over the last year, I've been doing a lot of research and, and to be fair, you know, at Keeneland, we, we, the, uh, team didn't have the uh, intention to jump in as deeply as I did. Um, you know, and, um, uh, good thing they were prepared, you know, Gavin had, and Chelsea had gone out and reviewed, I think 160 horses, you know, with the idea that we were going to purchase two. And, um, uh, and then, you know, I, um, uh, I, you know, I decided to accelerate that and I had told them before, Uh, you know, that, you know, that, you know, anything I do, I'm going to do all the way. And, um, you know, as I started really understanding, like what, you know, for my goals, you know, to, to start a breeding and a racing operation, you need numbers and, you know, you know, and you have to be lucky at the end of the day to win these big races. Like all the horses that are in the Kentucky Derby, they're all, you know, competitive horses and have had accomplished, you know, records in their own right, but you need luck you know at the end of the day in order to be able to do that so you can't rely solely on just like buying the best you also have to have numbers because you know things happen you know uh, during injuries you know just like any sport and so i decided that you know i needed more bullets in the chamber and you know everybody was advising me to stick with you know buying fillies and and mayors you know from the money-making angle of the business but you know if you if you're gonna have a racing program you have to have colts you know and so um, that, that's where we really came out in a big way at Keeneland. Was you know we bought a lot of colts um, because uh, you know I wanted to start getting the pipeline full of, of horses for racing.
0: Well, good morning, John. I'm so sorry I'm late. I am obviously not very smart and got 8:30 as not 5:30 in the morning out here in Southern California. So <laughs> it's lovely to see you. You're a lovely face to look up to in the morning. And uh, I, I'm just really intrigued about everything. I think I got in kind of the gist of it. Um, I had one question. Who's Gavin O'Connor and Chelsea? Because it just seems like everyone all jumped in at the same moment and just blew Keeneland up. Because yeah. I, I was at Keeneland and we were like, who's Jon Stewart? Oh, my God. Who is this guy, John Stewart? He's just buying everything. So how did you guys all connect?
3: Yeah, so Gavin um... – I uh, met a few years ago. He actually uh, used to date somebody that worked at my firm, and uh, so I, so I got to know him. Uh, he's a you know third generation horseman. You know he's been in the industry you know you know you know from you know a young age. Uh, two of his uncles are really you know uh, well established bloodstock uh, agents. Uh, you know his father, his grandfather was a. Um, um, a, a really a prestigious, uh, reporter in Ireland that, you know, wrote a, you know, kind of daily a piece about the industry. And so he's been around the industry his whole life and, um, you know, was literally, you know, he's, the um, you know, he's, he's the guy that helps the horses get together, you know, at Coolmore. So he, <laughs> you know, is, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what the technical term for like penis inserter is in the horse industry, but you know, that's, that's what he did, you know? And, um, uh, you know, so he, you know, this is a guy that like literally, you know, started his career, you know, as a stable boy, you know, and starts working his way, you know, through the, 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 um, industry literally, you know, taking any job just so he could be around the, the horses. Cause he has that much love for the horses and, you know, he's done a couple of, you know, pin hooking and some things like that, that everybody does when they, you know, start out and he's had some success with that. He bought my horse last year and, you know, another big reason I'm doing this is I really believe in, in him and the work ethic that he has and, you know, the opportunity to do something, to give somebody an opportunity uh, is is something that makes me, gives me a lot of joy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think he's deserving of the opportunity. Uh, like I said, he, he went out and reviewed 160 horses at Keeneland thinking I was going to buy maybe two, right? Right. And then, you know, as we started buying horses at Keeneland, he's the one on me going, pumping the brakes, going, whoa, whoa, whoa you know. And, uh, you know, he's getting a commission on everything that I buy. So, um, you know, he's just a, a, a wonderful um, horseman. And, um, you know, uh, it, this is a great opportunity for him. I hope he gets, like, more clients, you know, out of this. Um, but he's my bloodstock agent. He's um, um, new to be announced first on here. He's going to be the general manager of our new farm uh, that we're purchasing uh, and he's going to be running that operation. Uh, we've got some like senior level advisors that are going to, of course, be advising us. Uh, we've hired a farm manager for the farm as well. And um, uh, and, and so we're, you know, he's going to be a big part of the operation on a go forward basis. Uh, and I, I really trust, you know, his instincts uh, on these horses. And I think if you look at the quality of the purchases that we've made, you know, those horses absent the one full brother to practical joke that I kind of went on a, uh, you know, uh, my own and bought, uh, he's picked every one of those horses, uh, you know, and went through him, him and Chelsea both. And so, um, Chelsea's my girlfriend. And so, you know, uh, post-divorce, uh, I met Chelsea, uh, she rides uh, saddlebred horses and, um, has been around the horse industry. She used to work for Gainesway. So she also knows thoroughbreds bloodlines specifically. She's very well versed in, uh, the bloodlines of the horses. And, um, so her and Gavin worked together to pick the horses. Uh, and go through and kind of vet them and then I'll come out and review them. And then, you know, ultimately, you know, it's my decision on, you know, which ones we're purchasing and how many we're purchasing. But uh, that's how we're kind of handling that part of the business.
1: John, you are are involved right now. You've been <laughs> buying just about everything there is to buy. Weanlings, broodmares, um yearlings uh, we, again weanlings um, everything there is um, and you're also as you mentioned um, buying a farm so w- when you take a, a look at that um, where is this all going w- what is going to be the scope of your operation where is this going to be 10 years from now
3: yeah so I mean what what I'm trying to do of course I've got a lot of ground to, to make up and you know as someone that's you know gonna jump right in you can't just buy a bunch of yearlings and just kind of wait. Uh, to see them kind of like, uh, you know, mature, uh, you have to fill in the gaps. And so we're buying some horses, you know, that are racing. Uh, And so we've, you know, we bought Goodnight Olive and she's going to continue to race next year. Probably the best sprinting horse that we've seen in, you know, a few decades uh, in the U.S. And um, uh, we just bought another uh, Justify Philly uh, uh, Celtic Charm uh, who runs on the 26th at uh, Churchill Downs, won her maiden at Keeneland. Bought her from Mike Ryan. Um, and so we're starting to buy some, you know, horses that'll be running as well. Uh, you know, so we can, you know, that's the enjoyable part of the sport, of course, is the is the racing uh, part of it and and want to have uh, racers. And then trying to fill in, you know, with uh, weanlings, brood mares. Um, and, you know, so we want to have a whole breeding operation. Um, you know, we're not going to be doing training on the farm. You know, we're it's going to be more breeding. We will have stallions on the farm at some point you know, uh, Gavin's trying to rein me in, you know, from going toe to toe with some of the big guys on purchasing like the next big stallion uh, and telling me to be patient. Um, and so I may or may not listen to him. Uh, but, but um, you know, what I'm, what I want to do is, you know, when you look at these bloodlines these days, it's, it's really challenging when you go and you see so many horses being bred every year to these stallions. And you, you, I just don't think there's the quality of mares that should be out there breeding to these quality stallions at 200 plus covers a year, not even counting if they go to South America and cover horses there. And, and I think it's dilutive. So you take something that's real high quality and when you overproduce it, you create a commodity. Right. And, and so, like, I, I think Into Mischief had, uh, you know, 140 uh, colts for sale at Keeneland Yearling Auction. You know, what if there were only forty available? Like, what would what would have they demanded from a value and a price perspective? And so, I think there's, you know, if you go back thirty years uh, in the industry and look at where people were breeding the horses for racing and not turning into like a, a mass market breeding operation. And look, I don't think there's anything wrong with some of the larger farms. I understand, you know, there's an economic side of this. They found a way to be profitable, which is very good for them and for the industry. And, and, and I'm not trying to, like, change that. I mean, that, that's a, that's not going to happen. But when you look at the bloodlines, I would like to see the bloodlines being deeper, I would like to see more quality horses at every level when you go to purchase those horses and I think one of the ways to achieve that is to to control that, you know, breeding operation, control who's breeding, have quality stallions and control the covers, control who they're breeding to at a much, you know, tighter extent. I think it increases the value of of the horses and being from Kentucky, you know, as I mentioned, I think that we're still very relevant in the industry but we're, you know, I think arguably less relevant than, than we were 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago and you know I want to maintain that relevance. I think the bloodlines, I think in the industry especially for the Kentucky horsemen, we need to think about those as our intellectual property and and you just don't let that intellectual property go to the highest bidder, you know, where wherever it goes and they take that bloodline away. Uh, you know, it was a lot of my motivation for purchasing Goodnight Olive, you know, when I saw, you know, that the Japanese uh, had, you know, kind of honed in and were looking to take her overseas. And I wasn't going to have the best sprint horse, you know, that we've seen at least in the last 10 years, you know, uh, leave the country and go over there. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure that was the type of quality. So it was a little bit of me making a statement that, you know, there's almost no cost to keeping these horses over here. And, um, you know, I, I have the means and the ability to do that. Uh, ultimately, I think it makes a profitable operation, you know, as you mentioned, you know, where does this 10 years from now? I think you're going to see, you know, hopefully our farm, you'll see the quality of horses that are coming out of that farm will be something that people want to uh, have the opportunity to purchase. And so, you know, kind of, you know, bringing that scarcity of supply back into demand and, you know, um, concentrating the bloodlines and trying to make better quality uh, horses.
2: I got a couple of questions, John. First of all, uh, uh, all of us, you know, we've been around a while and everybody in racing has bemoaned the, what we would consider the early retirement of racehorses that are at the top of their game, like good night. night. What? What's the immediate plan
3: for Goodnight Olive? Does she stay with Chad? I yeah, mean, she's did... it... yeah she, left the, she left the day after we bought her. She's down with Chad, uh, and uh, she's going to take a, a, some time off. She's going to, you know, get some paddock time and, you know, get some downtime. Um, you know, at, with talking with Chad, we don't think that there's any quality races of her caliber that are, you know, on the calendar in the near term. So we're not going to just race her to race her. Uh, we're going to wait uh, probably till Keeneland. Um, you know, and, uh, we'll probably come out, you know, for the sprint there and, um, and then we'll, you know, start her season there and, 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 and look for her to make a, a, a chance to have a three-peat at the Breeders' Cup. And, um, you know, I think if you saw the way that she ran at the Breeders' Cup, I mean, she, again, to your point, I, I'm the same way. I think, you know, when you look back, there were, you know, there are horses that were running at, you know, seven, eight, nine, you know, even, you know, 10 years old, you know, Decades ago, and now, as soon as they get to like a point where people think there's a lot of value in them, we're retiring them, and then they move into breeding. Same thing on the stallion side, and so you know, I, I think these horses have a lot more you know opportunity. Again, I think they want to; they like that competitive uh, part of the the business. They like the they like to race. They like to win. They know what's they want to know what's happening. If you've been around the industry, you know these these horses in. You know they're, they're affected you know by the race you know mentally and physically you know impact it and i agree with you i think you know some of these horses can run uh you know longer and when you're not focused on the breeding element to make all of your your return uh, on your horses i think you're freed up to you know play that option value on the length of time those horses race out a little bit more and uh i think it's good for the industry and i think there's there's uh, you know it's a coexisting model you know i'm not you know trying to advocate that everybody needs to do it the way that i do it you know i, I have an idea about doing it a little bit different and uh, kind of going back kind of to an old school approach not really inventing anything myself but really looking into the past to guide you know our success and uh you know, but i agree with you i think some of these horses are retiring too early uh, especially you know on the stallion side um, and uh, and uh, with the mayors as well. And, um, you know, I think people want to see these good horses continue uh, to run uh, and have the opportunity to enjoy them because there's, you know, Good of Olive has a pretty big fan base, uh, and that's that's something else, you know, that I, I want to uh, be more transparent from uh, the very early stages. Uh, and so you're going to see um, we're bringing on a um, uh, social media uh, person that's going to be, uh, you know, putting a lot of uh, emphasis on just trying to show like um, the next stallion in the making. So you'll be able to follow all of our, you know, winglings and the and the Colts and, and, and fillies that we purchased, you know, through their training, you know, onto the track, you know, all kind of the behind the scenes of what's going on and providing that access because I think the people want it and, uh, you know, are very interested in getting, you know, that kind of access, you know, into, you know, how this is put together. so. As we do this venture, I, I want to be very transparent with uh, you know the the other fans of horse racing, uh, so that they can kind of see you know how this is developing. And tell us about the farm. You've mentioned the farm purchase now several times. Yeah, so that's been really exciting. So we have been I started looking at farms uh, right after the Keeneland sale. And um, and looked at several uh, in the area. There are you know several for sale here uh, in the uh, Lexington area, and decided on the uh, Shadwell uh, property out at Midway. And so uh, you know we put an offer in. They've accepted that offer. Uh, it's a little over 800 acres. Um, you know it's the um, Shadwell Stud operation, uh, very well built and maintained you know, give the hats off to the team at Shadwell. I mean, that property is immaculate. Uh, the buildings are, you know, uh, in a perfect shape. They, uh, there's no way the replacement value on the improvements that they put on the site are, you know, just really impressive. And so, um, you know, super excited about that. We're finalizing our diligence period and uh, we should close around December 18th, uh, you know, on the property. Um, and the property has uh, four houses for the farm workers, but no main house. Uh, and I think having a main house on the property would make it more, you know, relevant. And so, you know, I intend to build a house and live there uh, as well on the farm and, you know, kind of go back to the roots of old school owner operator, you know, horse farm, not, you know, even though I have an investment background, you know, I am from the local area. I, you know, I have homes you know, all over the world, but uh, having uh, this be my home base in Lexington uh, and making it, you know, significant from that standpoint, I, I think is good. And it, you know, it preserves the land, you know, that's important. You know, you guys have seen these horse farms that are getting purchased uh, and they get broke up and they're making subdivisions and things. And so it preserves the property. That's one of the goals that I have. And then, you know, being able to to do this in the local community, create jobs. Um, and you'll see my approach on the farm is gonna be different. You know, all of the senior management team on the farm is going to have equity interest in the farm. Uh, I don't know that there's other farms that actually do that. And so that's something as an investor, I do it with every company I own. Uh, All of the management team, they have equity interest, you know, that that um, that I fund uh, on their behalf uh, so that we're aligned and we have aligned interests. So like our farm manager, our general manager, those people, you know, our yearling manager, those people will have, you know, real equity interest in the farm. Um, and, you know, if 20 years down the line I sell the farm, then they'll get, you know, paid just like I'll get paid. If the if the farm's successful, they'll be successful. And so, um, you know, we're going to be uh, doing some doing some different things um, and um, really excited about uh, getting the farm up and running. It's going to take time, you know, with the, the, the mares we just purchased that are in full. Uh, we're going to actually uh, let them foal those uh, horses at Margot uh, Farm. Uh, I, don't, I, you know, I don't want to take any risk of bringing, you know, uh, mares uh, in foal onto the property and it being the first time, even though the staff's going to be very experienced. Uh, I want them to, you know, uh, not have that kind of pressure of starting the farm. So the horses that we have bought that are in foal will continue at Margot and they'll foal, uh, you know, there and then once uh, at that time, once the, the those uh, horses are stabilized, then they'll move over uh, to our farm. We'll probably move the weanlings over first uh, that we already purchased. Uh, and um, and then the the mares, once they foal, we'll start bringing those over uh, to the farm and, and start that way. You know, we have one hundred and I think forty eight uh, stalls. So we have. You know, lots of capacity will end up taking borders in the short term, Uh, probably more, you know, uh, the more like friends that are in the industry that, you know, uh, don't have their own farms uh, will be probably where most of that will come from, uh, you know, in in uh, in, in getting things kind of up and running. But that's that's kind of the plan right now for the near term.
0: Wow. Need anyone to mow your grass? Like, I am I'm I'm all in. I'll be on a plane tomorrow to Kentucky. Um, Any, anytime
3: you want to come cut grass, we have got lots of it. <laughs> well,
0: what's what's the long term plan? Like, where, if you could imagine, it seems like the funds are limitless. You have you're going to have a lot of friends in Kentucky now. They're beating down your door. Where can you see yourself in just five years, ideally?
3: Yeah, look, I want to I want I want to make a significant impact on the racing side immediately. You know, yeah. so I w- I want to win I want to win the Kentucky Derby. I mean, I think everybody in racing wants to win that. And we've seen there's a lot of really. Uh, talented uh, owners out there and trainers and people in the industry that have never won it. So it's just, it's elusive. You know, you can have the best horse and all of a sudden the day of the race, you got to scratch and you know, you can't, the horse can't race and it's disappointing. You know, those things happen. We see those things happen, you know, every day in, in racing. So, you know, I, I, that's definitely like an ultimate goal being someone from Kentucky. Uh, and so on the racing side, it's to, it's to compete. It's to compete in a way that everybody, looks at us and says that we're good sportsmen, you know, uh, the worst thing. And I tell every one of the trainers that I'm talking to is the, I have zero tolerance for any type of, of, um, of, um, issues. So like the worst thing that could happen is winning a prestigious race and then to be disqualified after for some reason, whatever that is. And, you know, I'm not going to get into all the political stuff of whether you should or shouldn't do this, that or the other. But I, I don't want any of that. Like, you know, I've I've, um, uh, you know, built up my reputation, you know, to the point, you know, that it is today without that kind of controversy around it. And I don't want, you know, anything controversial. I want the horse's well-being to be number one, you know, as we're training the horses like the, you know, I believe that the horse will tell us what it wants to do and when, when it's ready to do it. And so I want to, you know, uh, give the trainers the full latitude. Uh, but the horse's well-being comes first. And then respecting, you know, the rules of the sport uh, are important. Uh, those are important things. So, you know, at the end of the day, when I'm dead and gone and I people look back, I just hope people say that I had a positive impact on the sport. You know, uh, it's, you know I think anybody would want the same thing, probably yourselves as well, is you just want people to think that you – had a positive, what you did positively contributed to a sport that we all love and to animals that we love. That, that's, at the end of the day, that's what I really want. Uh, and that's, that's my goal. Uh, and so, um, you know, but of course, I want to be competitive and I want to win.
1: John, before we let you go, let's scoop the world here on our podcast. What is the name going to be the name of
3: your farm and racing operation? So the farm is going to be Resolute Farm and we're going to run under resolute racing. And so the, we chose resolute because, you know, uh, I wanted to, like, I was thinking about, you know, maybe bringing a farm back that had gone away and like, you know, you know, honoring the legacy and, and, you know, a lot of people are like, John, you need to put your own stamp on this. And, you know, if you've, if you've been at uh, any of the auctions and you see the way that I bid, you know, I'm a determined bidder, I think I've been called. Uh, And, uh, you know, in anything I do in life, I, you know, I'm determined, you know, for it to, to work. You know, sometimes I believe you will things, you know, into existence, you make them happen. And so, you know, I'm very resolute on what we're doing here. Uh, you know, so there's a meaning behind it. It's just not some guy, you know, that, you know, uh, just is jumping into the industry. This has been, you know, calculated and we've, you know, have a very specific strategy of what we're trying to do. Um, and, um, and, and so, you know, that's um, those are the names that we've come up with and what we're going to be establishing for uh, for the farm and for the racing.
2: John, I, I apologize in advance if this is a loaded question. No, it's OK. Uh, I know a lot of people in the industry that have been around a long time are probably thinking the same thing. And I know you've thought about this. We've all been around a while and we've seen very successful people in the business world and people with a lot of money. Uh, come into the sport and, and make a big splash. None as big as this. This is next level stuff. And then maybe 10, 15 years later, they look at the at the spreadsheet and they go, "Oh no, this has been we've lost way too much money." Love the sport, but we can't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. What makes this venture
3: different? Well, I'm going to make it profitable. Uh, it's going to be a profit. It's not a hobby. Like this isn't a hobby, you know, and, and, you know, look on the day to day, I'm going to trust horsemen to run the business, you know, and let them make the decisions. You know, sometimes when you're an accomplished business person, you want to control every aspect of everything. And, you know, uh, and, and, you know, for others, that may be, you know, the way that they go about it. I'm going to be very involved strategically in what we're doing. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be involved But I'm going to trust people like yourselves, people that have been in the industry, you know, people that know, you know, how things work um, to uh, run my day to day operations of the business. I'm not going to be micromanaging my farm manager. I'm not going to be micro, you know, trying to tell him what to feed the horses. You know, I'm not going to be micromanaging the trainers and try to tell them this is a race I want to run and this is where I want to be. You know, I'm going to I'm going to. Uh, Yeah, I've always in my career, I've always surrounded myself with people that I think are very smart. And then I try to empower them to do the job that they've been hired to do. Uh, You don't build a company like I built at at, at my firm Middle Ground, uh, you know, which has offices all over the world. And we own 180 factories all over the world. You you know, I I can't run 180 factories. And so that's not possible. So you have to surround yourself with good people. You have to trust them to make the decisions you know, yes, I I set the strategy. Yes, I'll set the framework. And yes, you'll see me out there, you know, bidding. I I enjoy that. I have a car collection as well and like to do those things. But, you know, uh, look, time will tell at the end of the day. You know, I think um, people may from a distance, they, you know, they may um, uh, make some comments. I've had people tell me, you can't, you can't bid like that. People are going to run you up or, you know, whatever, you know, in the auction arena. And I don't know. I mean, this last time, I, I was, I bought several horses with one bid. How are you getting bid up if you make one bid? So, you know, um, I, you know, if people want to bid, if they want to run me up, you might run me up once. But, you know, if you want to make 50 extra thousand dollars and risk never selling me another horse again, then run me up. Right. But, you know, I'm paying fair prices for horses, you know, which is good for the industry. If someone wants to take advantage of it, they'll take advantage of it once. And, you know, I have a long memory. uh, And so, you know, that may happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not paying any price for anything that I don't want out there.
1: Very good. Well, John, thanks again so much for your time. It's always exciting to have a new face in the business, particularly somebody who is so ambitious and so bullish on the future of horse racing. Thanks for being our Green Group Guest of the Week and best of luck with Resolute Racing and
2: Resolute
3: Farm. Thank you very much.
2: He definitely doesn't need it. But as the Green Group Guest of the Week, John Stewart will receive a free one hour tax consultation. And who knows, John probably loves free stuff with the Green Group. For more information on how the Green Group can save you money on your taxes, visit www.greenco.com.
4: Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonder Wheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies has produced positive results for his clientele and has made The Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. With some of the fullest fields in the country
2: and quality racing year round, there's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high as its average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky breads. breed them, raise them, race them. We all win.
0: The TVN Writers' Room is brought to you by Kentucky Breads. Kentucky Breads once again demonstrated their brilliance against the world's best on Breeders' Cup Championship weekend, highlighted by an impressive victory, thanks, Randy, from White Abario in the Classic. On Breeders' Cup Friday, it was fierceness, hard to justify, and just FYI, who stamped themselves as future stars with wins in the juvenile events. And on Saturday, Kentucky Breads scored repeat wins by Cody's Wish in the Dirt Mile, Goodnight Olive, we already mentioned her a lot in the Philly and Mare Sprint, as well as Elite Power in the Sprint. The nine wins over two days gives Kentucky Breads 249 Breeders' Cup victories, more than any state or any country. Kentucky Breads, breed them, buy them, raise them.
1: Another big story out of the week was the announcement that Del Mar will be getting the Breeders' Cup for 2025. Now, what that means is that there'll be three straight years of Breeders' Cups in in, in Southern California, starting with this year at Santa Anita, next year at Del Mar, and then two straight at Delmar. So, uh we're going to go uh, away again from the East Coast, from the Midwest, etc. Um it was a little bit of a surprise, but then when you read between the lines, it looks like what happened was that the Breeders Cup didn't really have much of a choice. Um Keeneland normally would be next in the rotation for 2025, but they have this big uh project uh they're undergoing where they're rebuilding the paddock and apparently they told Breeders Cup that the facility wouldn't be um in the right shape to host the uh, Breeders' Cup in 2025. Uh, I don't know if Santa Anita applied for it or not. Maybe Zoe knows that hasn't come out. But if you take Santa Anita and um, Keeneland out of the mix, they're really left with just Del Mar, and one of the things that's happened now is there are looks like until Belmont Park is rebuilt and ready to go, uh, it's supposed to reopen in 2026. The Breeders' Cup is only looking at three facilities, Keeneland, Del Mar and Santa Anita. Um, so it raises a couple of questions. Um, first of all, uh, Randy, you know, wh- how do you feel about having the Breeders' Cup three straight years in the West Coast, two straight years at Del Mar and, um, you know, you you might know more than the average bear about what's going on with Churchill Downs because of your connections with uh, NBC. But apparently it looks like Churchill Downs is is out of the equation. Uh, They haven't had the Breeders' Cup since 2018, and they're never mentioned anymore. So that's why it looks like we've gotten down to three tracks.
2: Um, I know Zoe's got an interesting theory about Churchill Downs as it regards to the Breeders' Cup, and I'll let her go there. I won't steal any of that thunder. But as far as Southern California, I mean – Hey, i'm in um i mean it, it's happened before santa anita hosted multiple breeders cups consecutively look i mean you know you're going to get great weather uh chances are you're going to get the nice firm turf that horse racing likes that the europeans actually prefer when they bring their horses over here i think the europeans have a better time coming to southern california uh and um It it also, from a TV perspective, it tends to work better because you're in prime time on some of the major TV markets uh, in the East Coast. So there are a lot of benefits to having the Breeders' Cup in Southern California. And as far as I'm concerned, I mean, if you ask me, hey, you can have the Breeders' Cup anywhere you want this year, Randy, where would it be? Del Mar. Del Mar, for me, I mean... So, Zoe, what about Churchill Downs and the Breeders' Cup looking at Churchill Downs as a potential site
0: well, and uh, not think,
2: going to Churchill Downs? What are your theories on that?
0: I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, when you look at the bigger scheme of things and the Churchill Downs Bob Baffert saga that's been going on for the past three years, he's not welcome at Churchill. He's not welcome in 2024 for the Derby. Maybe they'll extend that through to the Breeders' Cup. So, Breeders' Cup doesn't want to exclude anyone, and they shouldn't. They have they have nothing against Hall of Famer Bob Baffert. He had a while not winning. He had a pretty successful Breeders' Cup here um, this time around. So, I mean, if you're looking between the lines, that's exactly where you need to look. He's welcome in Southern California and pretty much everywhere else. I'm in agreement that the Breeders' Cup. I probably should be at Santa Anita every year as far as I'm concerned. It's a bigger facility. Delmar's great, but you have limited people that can get to Delmar. What what was it, 30,000 or something at Delmar? It's not a very big facility whatsoever and they handled it brilliantly. They really did. It was a comfortable Breeders' Cup at Delmar. The Europeans, hey, if I'm living and working in England, like I did for many years, and someone said to me, hey, Breeders' Cup, Do you want to go to New York, where you're going to freeze your ass off? Do you want to go to Monmouth, where it's going to be a monsoon? Or do you want to go to California? Well, hey, guess what? I want to go to California. We saw Rick Dutcher went to Disneyland after he took down the classic. I think the host at the Breeders' Cup should pay, just like they do in the NBA or whatever sport it is, to send them to Disneyland. Send the winner of the Breeders' Cup Classic every year to Disneyland. That would be fantastic, and people would love it. So, yes, I am delighted that it it is in Southern California, and Delmar did a great job. Nobody can complain.
2: This year this year at the Breeders' Cup, Bill, uh, I, I checked into my hotel, which was uh, in Monrovia, just down the street from Santa Anita. And I checked in on Monday and at my hotel, there were a lot of, uh, of horsemen. There were a lot of Godolphin people there. There were a lot of people there. It, it was like the hotel of choice, not a, not a luxury hotel, but uh, the hotel of choice for a lot of the exercise riders and the grooms and the traveling lads and all that for the Europeans. So I check in on Monday, I'm at the front desk and I look over to my right. it's mid afternoon on Monday. The pool is absolutely packed <laughs> in November. Right? It was November first, or maybe October thirty-first. I think it was Halloween. Where were you? Which hotel? Uh the DoubleTree. Yeah, right the down DoubleTree. The street from me. Right by the highway on oh. Huntington Drive, uh, down the street from Santa Anita. There were probably a hundred people at the swimming pool, and I went out there just out of curiosity. You know, ninety-nine point nine percent of them were European. Having a great time, having a great time at the pool. And I think it just sort of drove it home to me how much the Europeans enjoy coming to Southern California for a Breeders' Cup. If it was at Louisville, if it was at Lexington in late October, early November, I don't think there would be anybody out at the pool, put it that way.
0: (laughs) There were a lot of red faces and an awful lot of sunburn. But I have one other thing that I'd like to add. So I was, we were all there on Saturday. Randy, you were. And I was one of the people doing the mass exodus, I hate to say it, after the classic. Like, I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to watch the final two at home. I live in Monrovia, it's just down the road. No problem. And I understand why they had to put the classic earlier. So here's one thing, and maybe we could get this out Why not make the classic the first Breeders' Cup race? If it has to be held earlier because of TV rights and everything... Make it race number one. You think people are going to spend a fortune on their tickets and leave after the first race? Make the classic. The first Breeders' Cup race on Breeders' Cup Saturday. People are going to stay throughout the day. If you make it two races before the end, there's going to be a mass exodus next year as well. Make it early. Make people get in, get them in the seats, and make the classic an early race.
2: All those people miss snowballs.
0: (laughs) I know, right?
2: What a great gallery! Zoe, yeah. some good out
1: of the box thinking there. Randy, one more, more thing before uh, we, we go here. Um, And uh, Zoe has a very interesting theory uh, about Bafford and Churchill Downs. And if she's right, that would mean that Churchill Downs uh, who is now only suspended Bafford through 2024 would be contemplating extending the ban, which would be something that um, I think universally all three of us would be very much against. And I think at this point, most people on horse racing would be very much against, but the, um, I don't understand all the economics but th- how the money is divided up between the Breeders Cup and the host track whereas apparently the the real uh, you know the money the serious money doesn't go to the host track it goes to the Breeders Cup I've heard that Churchill Downs just is is you know can't come to a financial agreement with them and wants more money um is that something that that is uh you've heard as
2: well I don't know Bill but it wouldn't surprise me I know that the Breeders Cup when they uh when they uh when they have a uh you know, a host track that hosts the Breeders' Cup gives up almost complete control to the Breeders' mm-hmm. Cup. You know, all the box seat revenue and the reserve seat revenue and and all that, they, the, the Breeders' Cup just basically comes in and uh, almost takes over. And I know that some tracks have had an issue with that and have decided that, that it's not, it, they might actually lose money hosting the Breeders' Cup as opposed to making any kind of a A financial windfall. As far as the Baffert thing goes, the way I can, again, I don't know this, I don't have any inside information, I haven't asked about it, uh, but the way I could see it happening is the Breeders' Cup, if they did go to Churchill Downs, they would say, okay, can you give us a guarantee that Bob Baffert will be able to race at the Breeders' Cup in November of 2024? And if you're Churchill Downs, and we know their take on Baffert right now, You know, would you be willing to absolutely give the Breeders' Cup a guarantee in November of 2023 that you will definitely not have Baffert continuing on suspension? My guess would be probably they wouldn't go quite that far as to guarantee that. So I could see the conversation developing sort of in that regard.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see it. And the money side as well. For sure, um, host tracks don't make any money. There's really no upside other than the prestige of having the Breeders' Cup there. And we know that Churchill Downs doesn't, I mean, they like prestige, but they also like money. And so do their stockholders. I wish I'd have bought some stock in Churchill. Mm. I'd be rich by now. I mean, they've done right by their stockholders. I will say that much. They've done very, very well by them.
2: Yes, they have.
0: The TDN Writer's Room is brought to you by XBTV. The XBTV Workout of the Week features two promises juveniles trained by the aforementioned Bob Baffert. They went four furlongs in 48 and 4 at Santa Anita on November the 12th. Pinecone broke her maiden in fine fashion at Los Al by five lengths in September. And she worked with Showcard, Showcard, a promising Judmont homebred daughter, of InterMischief who has yet to make her first start, but she sure looks like she's ready for it.
4: All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit WestPointTB.com.
2: The TD and Riders Room brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds, where joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie. Last week, West Point won four races, including two in their partnership with Hall of Fame trainer Shug McGahee, the debuting two-year-old Cugino and the re-emerging three-year-old Signator, It's a hot streak with West Point plus McGahee. That's five wins in their last seven starts together. And this Saturday, they'll look to keep that streak going with integration. The Virginia Derby winner who takes his two for two record into the grade two hill print stakes for three-year-olds on the grass at Aqueduct. If you're interested in joining a West Point partnership Go to West Point TB, as in Thoroughbred, westpointtb.com.
1: All right, that's a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank my partners, Randy Moss, Zoe Cadman, our Green Group Guests of the Week, John Stewart, our co-producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, our editors, Aliyah LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson, and she's back. And our mascot, Lucy, right over Randy's right shoulder. Thanks, everybody, for tuning us in. We'll talk to you next week.
0: I won't be here next week. I'm going to go cut grass for John Stewart.